We're going to be in the book of Colossians this morning, chapter 1. Colossians chapter number 1. I have been threatening for some time to preach uh, verse by verse through the book of Colossians and have not done so. Am I promising that I'm going to? No. Am I warning you that I might? Yes. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning and reading the first uh, eight verses here. And I'm just thankful for this book of the Bible that is so encouraging and rich in truth. And I trust that it will be as helpful to you as it has been to me. Uh, I know you've stood a few times today. If you're able to, I would invite you to stand again. If you're not able to, that's totally fine. You can remain seated. We're going to read beginning in verse number 1 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would just uh, speak to our hearts, Lord. Reveal truth to us. Open your word and open our eyes to be able to behold marvelous things out of your word today. Lord, I ask that you would just hinder uh, our enemy today that would seek to distract us and to keep our, uh, our attention away from the things that you have for us today. And Lord, would you just direct our hearts and our attention into your word, open our eyes to the truth, and Lord, allow us to be transformed by your word. I pray that if there's anyone who's sitting here today that does not know Christ as Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray that for those of us who are saved, that we would be encouraged in our walk with you, that we'd be challenged, and that we would be conformed to the image of our Savior. So we commit these things to you and trust that you'll accomplish what you please in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This uh, particular epistle to the Colossians, it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, from Rome. In fact, I don't know about your Bible, but at the end of the book in my Bible, there's a little postscript, not necessarily the inspired uh, text of Scripture, but just a kind of a subscription there at the end that gives us some information about it uh, back and, and at the uh, chapter 4 and verse number 18 the, right at the bottom it says written from Rome to Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus anyone else have that in their Bible I'm the only one huh okay but that's just basically some information about the book it was actually written while Paul was in Rome uh, awaiting I guess kind of a trial uh, that where he would that's kind of where the narrative of his life ends. 
uh, in the Bible. And, uh, and, and he's there in Rome writing to this church that is at Colossae. Colossae was one of the cities uh, of Asia Minor. If you've ever read in the book of Revelation and uh, the first, uh, well, chapters 2 and 3 are letters to the seven churches of Asia. This is not one of those churches, but the last letter there in Revelation 3 was written to the church at Laodicea. And this particular church would have only been within like 15 miles of Laodicea. So it's, it's kind of that region right there, right in that same area. And it was one of those churches that was started about the same time that those other churches were. Why is that significant? Well, because we have some clues in this book that actually indicate to us that Paul himself had never personally visited Colossae. That he had not been there physically in fact, as, as we read of, of this, we, uh, we hear him say things like in verse number 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, verse number uh, 8, speaking of Epaphras, says, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Uh, if you look back to, uh, to, toward the next chapter, chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, for I would that ye knew... What great conflict I have for you and for them in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And so apparently this was one of those churches that Paul had not personally visited. He hadn't been there. All he knew of them was what had been told to him by this man Epaphras. Who was Epaphras? Well, we don't know exactly but it would seem as though, again, if we had a map, you could see this area of, of, of Asia Minor there. It would be in the region that we know as Turkey today. So if you can kind of place that in your mind, Asia there, right, right near the Middle East and just south of Europe. In Turkey, you find this area where these churches were, Laodicea and, uh, and Thyatira and Philadelphia, Colossae. And another church that would have been in that area was the church at Ephesus off to the west. Well, Ephesus was a place that Paul had been. In fact, he spent about three years there in Ephesus ministering to them. And it seems as though that church in Ephesus became kind of a hub or a sending church that would kind of go and from there the word of God disseminated to that part of the world. And so it's very likely that this man Epaphras, who was from Colossae, had been in Ephesus at the time of Paul's ministry, probably saved under that ministry and went back to Colossae and started that church there. And so the communication that Paul has had with this church has been through this man Epaphras. And, and he's writing to them not as one who knows them personally, but as someone who is aware of them. I think of it kind of like this. When we have a missionary that we support, that is in another place in the world. And maybe we haven't been there, but we've read the prayer letters and we've prayed even for individuals within that particular ministry and we know of a church in that area. That's kind of the situation. Paul is writing to them, uh, not as one who knows them personally, but someone who is intimately familiar with their needs and what is going on in that place. And so uh, he, he writes this as Paul who is the human writer with Timotheus. And, uh, and Timotheus, or Timothy, was obviously a co-laborer of Paul. And verse number two, he, he says, uh, he's writing to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. I, I just want to make a quick side note there. 
that uh, even if you do not know certain individuals who are brethren in Christ, they're still brethren. They're still brothers and sisters. And, and this is one of the things that I just love uh, about traveling and going to other places. I've been in places, uh, other countries, where I don't speak the same language. I don't look the same. Our culture's totally different. We eat different food. We have different backgrounds. And yet you come into an assembly of God's people, into a scriptural New Testament church, and there is an automatic bond and love there. Why? Because in Christ, we are brethren. We are of the same family. We're part of the family of God. And so he's writing to them as his brethren, his brothers in Christ. And then, there in verse number two, if you look at that colon, those who are in Colossae, he says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've studied the Pauline epistles, the letters that are written by Paul, in every single one of them, uh, you'll find these words or a variation of these words, grace and peace be unto you. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. Or you'll see these words, grace and peace. It, it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, I guess, a, uh, a greeting, if you will. But, but I really believe it's more than that. If you dig into this a little bit and consider what is he actually saying uh, that he desires for God to do. Well, he says, I, I want you to have the grace of God in your life. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What does it mean to have God's grace in your life? We understand that when we get saved, our salvation is not of works... ...but it is by grace, right? And there is, there is a grace that is a saving grace. It is God offering to us something that we do not deserve... ...in the form of salvation, the free gift of eternal life... ...through the blood of Jesus Christ. So all of us who are saved have received grace. But over in the book of Acts, and we won't take the time to go there... ...but in Acts in chapter number 4, there's a statement made... ...that great grace was upon them all. In other words, that there is a grace that goes beyond just bringing about our salvation. But there is grace that is a continuing need in our lives. Did you know that you need the grace of God in your life today? Not only for your salvation, but you need God's grace to strengthen you, to enable you, to help you. You need God's grace. And it's available to you, by the way. That God would give you something that you don't deserve. His ability to empower you and strengthen you and help you to live for the glory of God and with his help each day. And the Bible tells us in the, in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 that we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. And obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know I woke up this morning with a need for God's grace. And, and I'm honestly, every day we need God's grace, but, but today in particular, uh, just with things going on and needs in my life and, and all of that, there were just some things that I had to say to the Lord, Lord, I need you today. I need your help in my life. I need your grace to enable me and help me to do the things that you have called me to do. 
And so this, this greeting, it's more than just a greeting. It's more than just well wishes. It's actually saying, my heart's desire for you is that you would live each day in the grace of God. And, and boy, that ought to be our heart for the brethren. It ought to be our heart for one another that, that, that we would live in the grace of God. He says, grace be unto you and peace. Peace. I really believe that most people today have no real peace. Uh, we live in a world that is so lacking in peace. We talk about the need for world peace. We talk about the need for peace between the nations. But the reality is we need peace in our own lives. And we live in tumultuous times. We live in times where there are all kinds of burdens and stresses and, and cares of the world. And quite honestly, fears and sorrows and all kinds of things that work against us to take our peace from us. And yet there is true peace that can be found in Christ. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. ...give I unto you. He gives us peace. But I want you to notice that that peace is always attached to grace. It, it, it's not peace that we find within ourselves. It, it's not something that we just say, well... ...you know, I found that uh, by eating a better diet and sleeping better... ...and, and following this particular uh, exercise routine... Or, ...or whatever the case is that I found... ...some peace in my life. Those are all fine things. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But true peace doesn't come from the things of this world... ...and it doesn't come from within. It comes from above. It comes from God. It is God's grace. It is His gift to you and to me... ...and it's available through Him. And so this wish that He has for them... ...He says grace and peace from God, and, uh, from God our Father... ...and the Lord Jesus Christ... That is where uh, grace and peace come from. Now, look at verse number 3. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. Uh, what we really see here is some encouragement from a friend. Uh, here Paul is saying, uh, I, I, I want you to know something we thank God for you, and we pray for you. Notice he even uses this phrase. He says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Praying always for you. Think of how encouraging it must have been to hear the Apostle Paul say, I am continually in prayer for you. There was a time in my life, and I've shared this with several people, there was a time in my life as a teenager that I was saved and away from God. And I knew that I was called to preach, I knew that God had a purpose in my life, but I was just living for myself. I wasn't intentionally living in rebellion, I wasn't angry, I wasn't bitter, I was just kind of curious about the things of the world and not real interested in spiritual things, to be quite honest. And so I was going about my life as a kid being raised in a Christian home. I was in church faithfully. I was doing the things I ought to do. I wasn't necessarily at that particular time getting into all kinds of trouble. But I was away from the Lord. I was backslidden in my heart. 
I wasn't doing that which was right. And I had an uncle who was, uh, I knew somewhat from a distance. I didn't know him well personally. He didn't know what was going on in my life. But I remember being at a family gathering and having this uncle come up to me. And as a probably 14-year-old, maybe 15-year-old boy, he came up to me and he put his arm around me and he said, Brian, I want you to know that I pray for you every day. And he kind of just patted me on the shoulder and turned and walked away. And I, I, to this day, I know that he does not realize the impact that that, that that made on my life. But that's been over 20 years ago. And I have not forgotten it. It still sticks with me today. Because that same person continually prays for me. There's a, a woman that I have never met by the name of Martha. Martha is a widow lady that is kind of a, a friend of a friend that lives somewhere out east. I don't even remember which state. At one point it was North or South Carolina. I think she's moved since then. For the last 10 years, I have received an email from Martha every single Saturday night telling me that she's praying for me as I stand in the pulpit the next day and preach. That's her ministry. She has a list of pastors and missionaries that she prays for every week. And she'll spend all day Saturday praying for these people, these servants of the Lord. And I've never met her, but I cannot tell you the value of her prayers for me. Just to know that someone cares enough to bring my name before the throne of God and pray for me. It, it is so encouraging and so helpful. And here you have the Apostle Paul saying, I want you to know I've never met you face to face. But ever since I heard of what God did in your life and how God is working in you, I, I am continually thanking God and I am continually praying for you. Boy, that's got to be encouraging, isn't it? I believe that the Lord wants us to be encouraging to one another. I think it's God's will and desire for us to build each other up. Sadly, many times Christians are known for tearing down. Tearing down other people. Tearing down even sadly one another. But God's people ought to be known for building up. We ought to be known for encouraging and helping and, and, and lifting up one another the Bible tells us that, that, uh, that we, if we truly have love, if we truly have charity for one another, that we will be concerned about the welfare of one another. We're in Colossians. Let's go back just a few pages to the book of Philippians and chapter 1. A, a, a similar introduction to the church at Philippi. The difference is the church at Colossae had never known Paul personally. The church at Philippi probably knew him as well as any church that knew Paul. They knew him. They loved him. They were invested in his ministry. And yet he writes a very similar thing to them. He says in verse number 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Listen to this, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it unto the day 
of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, in so much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He said, listen, I want you to know I love you. I pray for you. I thank God for you. And I trust that the work that God started in you at salvation, he will be faithful to work that out, to perform that in your life until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, this should be the normal, natural uh, attitude of every Christian that we care about one another not just in a physical and earthly sense but that we care about one another's spiritual well-being that we seek to build one another up to help each other to grow to pray for each other and to encourage even in times of difficulty and trouble the Bible says in Proverbs 25 and verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. That kind of paints a picture in your mind maybe of just how pleasant and lovely it is. A word fitly spoken. You know, one of the things that I often pray for, not every day, but something that I often pray for is, Lord, help me to say the right thing to the right person at the right time. Just help me. To, to do something, to say something, even if I'm not aware of it, just help me to use my words to build someone else up. In the same way that I've received encouragement from people praying for me or people saying things to me that have just helped me. Once in a while I'll receive a text message from someone uh, in the church here or, or someone else. Just a word of encouragement, just, you know, thank you. And, and, and I appreciate you. And that, you wouldn't believe what that does to just lift the spirits. To just encourage you. And I'm so thankful for that. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think about that. You have the ability to, to literally speak life into someone. Or to take life away. Simply by your words. Simply by the things that you say. Here we find in Colossians some encouragement from a friend. Hey, I want you to know I love you. I care about you. I pray for you. I'm encouraged by the work that God is doing in your life. Folks, we've got some young people in this church that God is doing a work in their life. They ought to hear from you how proud you are of them. They ought to hear from you that, that, that you are for them, that you're praying for them, that you're cheering them on. Uh, they, ought to, they ought to know. I'm not saying that we vainly lift people up and puff them up and stroke their egos, but, but they ought to know. You know, I, I see what God is doing in your life, and, and I'm so encouraged, and I just want you to know I'm, I'm praying for you, and I, I want to help you in any way that I can. Follow God's will for your life. You never know how God might use that in their life. So there's encouragement from a friend. But I want you to know also as we go back to Colossians 1 that Paul makes reference to the evidence of their faith. The evidence of their faith. Notice he says in verse number 4, he, he's told them he's praying for them in the previous verse, but he says in verse 4, since 
we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, since, since we heard that you were saved. But then notice this. And of the love which ye have to all saints. Notice he's not just rejoicing. That there has been a profession of faith in their lives. A lot of people profess faith in Christ. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Listen, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I got saved, you ought to rejoice with them. You ought not tear them down. You ought not treat them as though it's suspect. But I want you to know this. I have a whole lot more rejoicing in the proof of someone's faith than just the profession of their faith. If anybody can say, oh, I'm saved. I, I, I received Christ. Anybody can say that. But the evidence speaks louder than the words. And the reality is, if you are a child of God, if you've been saved, it is more than just a profession. There will be proof. Notice he says in verse number 6 here, which is come unto you, speaking of the gospel, he says, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. What's he saying? Since the day that you received Christ, there has been fruit, evidence of that salvation in your life. Jesus said that there are false prophets, false teachers... And in Matthew 7, he told us the way that we identify those is by their fruits. He said, by their fruits ye shall know them. And then he said, does a, does a fig tree bring forth thorns? Or does a, does a thorn bush, I'm paraphrasing, uh, produce good fruit? No, that doesn't happen. You, you know you identify a tree by its fruit. In the same way, you identify a child of God, not just by what they say, but by the fruit of their life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, we quote it often. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Friend, if you're a child of God, there ought to be some evidence of that in your life. I, I obviously don't believe... In a work salvation because the Bible doesn't teach a work salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It is only in him that salvation is found. But listen to me. Why would we ever expect that a salvation that can change our eternal destination wouldn't change our earthly life? Or maybe I should put it this way. Why would you think... That a salvation that is so shallow that it doesn't change your earthly life. Why would you believe that that's going to change your eternal destination? We don't go to heaven because of a changed life. We go to heaven because of the shed blood of Christ. But listen friend, if you've got the shed blood of Christ in your life. And you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You ought to understand that doesn't just change your destination once you die. It changes your life that you live. One of the first evidences of genuine conversion, genuine salvation in your life is a love for the brethren, a love for other people. That's what he says, since we heard of your faith 
in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all saints. Verse number 8, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one toward another. It is by our love that our faith is most evident. I want you to hold your place here in Colossians. Go forward with me just a few pages to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter 1. Verse number 18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith should uh, that your faith and hope might be in God. Now listen to this. He's talking about our salvation. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ through our faith in him. Look at verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. What is he saying? You are saved, you are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Unto what? Well, unto eternal life, unto the forgiveness of sins, unto newness of life. But we are saved unto the unfeigned love of the brethren. That's what happens when we get saved. We naturally, by walking in the spirit that he has given to us, ought to have love for one another. This was the evidence that Paul pointed to for the Colossians to say, listen, you have professed faith in Christ. But your love for one another is what really encourages me because that's the proof of your faith in Christ. That's the evidence of your faith. So as we go back to Colossians 1, we see this encouragement from a friend, the evidence of their faith. But lastly, I want to just point out to you, he speaks of the expectation of the future. Verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all saints, for, this is what we give thanks for, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Of all the things that are going on in your life that we rejoice over, none is greater than knowing the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. We are rejoicing because your eternal destination has been changed. 
You're no longer a child of the devil on the road to destruction, on the road to hell. You are today saved and on your way to heaven. And you have hope in death. You have hope when this life is over. And friend, understand that this word hope is not how we use it today, a dream or a wish. This hope has to do with an absolute assurance, a confidence, a, a, a just a, a reality that is known in our innermost being that when this life is over, we are on our way to heaven to be with the Lord. Friends, that is a great hope to have. Bryson sang the song a moment ago, a few moments ago, about going to dwell on Zion's hill. That, that one day when this life is over, we get to go and be with the Lord. And all of the troubles and difficulties of this world, of this life, will be a thing of the past. Boy, isn't it wonderful to know that we have hope in heaven. Go with me, if you would, to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and near the end of the book, chapter 21. And I want to just briefly read, there are many places that we could read of the hope that we have in heaven. The fact that Jesus said that he goes to prepare a place for us. And if he goes to prepare a place for us, that he will come again and receive us unto himself, that where he is, there we will be also. We could talk about the fact that 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that we shall ever be with the Lord. We could talk about the fact that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that we are going to put off this mortal body, this corruptible flesh, and we're going to put on a new body that is incorruptible, that is immortal, where there is no more uh, death and dying. But let's look at Revelation 21, verse number 1. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Wow, isn't it wonderful to know what is awaiting us in heaven? Look down at verse number 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending uh, out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, and her light was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear 
as crystal. And had a wall great and high and had twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon which are the names of the uh, twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Look down uh, to verse uh, number 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And it says that that they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. It says that, that, that everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. Boy, isn't it wonderful to know that that is the hope that's laid up for us in heaven? That that is the reality that awaits those of us who have been saved? That we are headed for that heavenly city. I'm looking forward to that, friend. I'm looking forward to it. But I want you to know that that's not the hope of every person. Because in this same chapter, Revelation 21, verse number 8, it says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, most people, when someone passes away, they just kind of want to say, well, you know, they're in a better place. Well, this hope of a better place belongs not to everyone, but to God's people, the redeemed. That list that I just read to you has some pretty wicked and horrible things in it. Idolaters and sorcerers and whoremongers. But did you notice that the very first ones mentioned were the fearful and unbelieving? It's not just the wretched scum of society that are going to have their part in the lake of fire. It's just all liars. You know, there's not one of us in here that's never told a lie. And by the purest definition, we could all be called liars, couldn't we? Let God be true, but every man a liar, the Bible says. We all have sinned and broken God's commandment, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And every one of us deserves to take part in the second death, to dwell in the lake of fire for all of eternity. So how is it then that we can 
have the hope of eternal life. Well, what did it say in that chapter? The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. As we go back to Colossians chapter number 1, I want to point out to you that verse 5 says, For the hope, we're rejoicing for the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. How, how do we know this hope is there? Whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. How can you have that assurance? How can you have that hope? It is through the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is very simply that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What does that have to do with me? Friend, you and I are sinners unworthy of the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. We, we don't deserve it. But Christ, the sinless Son of God, came to this earth and he lived a sinless life. And he went to the cross where the Bible says that God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He literally took our sins upon himself and died in our place and paid the penalty that you deserve and I deserve for sin. And there in that place as he shed his blood... Payment was made for your sins. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Victorious. Conquering the penalty of sin, which is death. And he offers now eternal life to whosoever will believe on him and receive his gift of eternal life. That is the gospel. That you, simply by placing your faith in Jesus and his shed blood, can be forgiven, can be redeemed, can be made right with God. And friend, if you will receive his gift of eternal life, this can be said of you. The hope that is laid up for you in heaven. I'm thankful that I have that hope today. I'm thankful that I know that when I die, I am going to be with the Lord. How do I know that? Not because I'm a good person, not because I've done a lot of good things, not because I serve the Lord, but because Christ died for me and I've placed my faith in him. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Friend, can I say to you, I don't care if this is the first time that you've ever darkened the doors of a church or if, if you've been in church your entire life, if you have not been saved today, would you not turn from yourself and from your sin? Throw up your hands to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I can't save myself. My good works will never make me right with you. But I believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough for me. And I want to place my faith in him alone to save me. Would you call out to him and be saved today so that you can have the hope of eternal life, that you can have the expectation of the future. Are you saved today? Do you know him as your savior? Maybe you do. Maybe you would say, yes, I am saved. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that I'm on my way to heaven. Can I ask you, is there evidence in your life? Is the spirit of God working in you? Is he changing you? I'm not asking if you're perfect. I am asking if it's real. 
You say, yes, I, I know. I can look at my life and say that God has changed me. Are you encouraging others? Are you trying to help others in their walk with the Lord? Are you trying to speak a, a, a word in a fitly way, in a timely manner, to build up and to encourage and to help others in their walk with the Lord or to point other souls to the Savior?